to the Bible. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. We're thankful for Josh and Victoria and Grayson and Wesley, Lord. We ask that you would bless them, Lord. And uh, we pray for protection, particularly on Grayson, Lord, as he nears this third surgery, that you would give doctors wisdom and Josh and Victoria wisdom as uh, they know that this must take place, Lord. And then uh, they look forward to um, uh, re-entering the church in a un- uh, more efficient way, more gathered with us, Lord. But Lord, we please protect this little life uh, till then and as they, as they press on, Lord. Father, thank you for everyone in this room. We all have issues we're going through. We all have difficulties we're being challenged in in one way or another. Um, we have loved ones that don't know you. We have others that we love who are sick and, or towards the end of their life, Lord. All these things concern us. But yet, Lord, we have a God that we put our faith in and we rest in him. There is no one compared to him, we sang tonight. And we believe that. There's nothing compared to God. Though the world tries to do that, um, we know he is incomparable. So thank you for loving us and seeing us through life. Lord, now, Father, as we look at your nation, Israel, as they set up a tabernacle and, and begin to try to have you reside among them, Lord, I mean, you teach us great things, such, uh, such great bold truths point towards the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and his atoning work. And so we pray that you help us see those things and worship in the gospel tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Probably for many people, um, if I said we were going to preach the gospel in Exodus, middle of Exodus, during the, as we study the tabernacle, there's probably many churches that, that wouldn't, well, what are you talking about? Don't, shouldn't you be in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John or something like that? But yet we see the Bible as the central, the central, the central effort of the Bible is pointing towards the cross. It's the redemptive uh, testimony of God. This is a plan of God to lead everyone towards the cross. That everything's moving that direction. You remember when Jesus was resurrected from the grave? We just hit this not too long ago. And Mark, he ends up on the road of Emmaus, and there he meets two disciples, and he chats with them for a while. And pretty soon he tells them that they're foolish and slow of heart, because he says, Luke chapter twenty-four, all of the scriptures. And he said, starting and beginning with Moses and the prophets. All of them speak of him. In fact, the language says exactly this. He said he explained to them concerning himself all of the scriptures. So when we study the Old Testament, yes, there's a lot of narrative there and, and figurative language at times. And sometimes there's, there's events there that we don't want to turn into something that it's not. But we have to have this view that everything is flowing towards the cross. It makes it very exciting when you try to read through the Bible. And so many people give up because they get lost in that and can't keep the imagery. Probably a great book to have open as you work through the Pentateuch is Hebrews. And we'll be in Hebrews tonight because Hebrews is really a commentary to the Old Testament. And so I love this. And when I get studying this, and I've had a few Wednesdays where I was teaching on something else or I was gone. And as I got back in it this week, I go, man, I love studying Exodus because I'm learning so much. And uh, I hope you learn it as well. Now, Today we're going to deal with the tabernacle and the furnishings. We're going to see that in chapters 25 and 26. And, and so we set some context and remind ourselves where we are. We have a nation that, as, that has assembled itself at the foot of Sinai. They're, they're there and God's there, right? All you have to do to see God is you have to just look up and the, the mountain's on fire, right? And smoke and the glory of God rests on the mountain. He's right there with them. 
But that's not going to always be the case. They are not to stay in Sinai. As nice as that might be to have God right there and not too far away, a rock that flows water out of it and manna falling from heaven, that's not where God wants them. He wants them where? In the promised land. That's where he wants them to go. And so they're not going to stay at that mountain. They're going to move to the promised land. And as they travel to the promised land, they are going to have the great privilege of having Yahweh, the eternal living God, be in their presence. Now, God is going to have them construct this tabernacle where the presence of God can move with them. But it's not easy. You have a holy God residing with sinful people. This is not easy. And so these chapters are going to help us understand that God desires to live with them, but he must be separated from them at some level, right? And, and he's going to come among them, but there's only going to be a, a limited way to get to him. You cannot be in his presence and be a sinner. And so he's going to introduce to them how they can do that. Now, during a portion of the history of Israel, God was pleased to draw very close to the people. He was pleased to be part of this portable tabernacle and even the permanent structure that Solomon would build later. He fills both of those with his glory. Now, I think what's fascinating when you study this, and I'm working on something for Christmas time, um, sometimes people will call it the Emmanuel principle. What's Emmanuel mean? God, God with us, right? God with us. And so this is the Emmanuel principle in a sense. We can use that term, I think you understand it. God longs to be with his people. Now you and I know in the New Testament, as we, as we receive the Lord Jesus Christ by the sovereign grace of God in our life, at that moment, the Spirit of God is with us. Emmanuel is with us. He resides within us permanently. So the Emmanuel principle is never left. God loves to reside with his people. And at salvation, in, the, in a new covenant, New Testament era, we have the Lord Jesus Christ residing with us. The spirit of Christ is with us, Paul says. Now, the Israelites looked at the temple or the tabernacle in the wilderness. Um, and, and here, I want you to think about this. They're all living in tents. So what does God build for himself? It's basically a giant tent. And we're going to see where they take this thing apart and carry it across the deserts. And they actually get in, you know, they get in trouble. They don't believe God. And they end up carrying this thing around for 40 years. And I thought that's fascinating that because the people were living in tents, it seems that God lives in a tent as well. Now, God's tent's a little more costly, isn't it? It's full of lots of skins and there's precious gold and and it's unique. But it basically is built of skins. And so God desires to live among his people. And he lives with them where they're dwelling. I think there's important truth there. Now, it reminds the people that there was no simple way to approach God, though. He's going to move with them, right? He's, they're going to set the tabernacle up. He's going to fill it. He'll be in there. And then as they get ready to move, the Shekinah will leave. It'll form a cloud or a pillar of fire. And they'll follow that and they'll move with God that way. But... They needed to get to God. And, and the way to get to him, as we'll see, was through a blood sacrifice that the people could come into the courtyard. So, first of all, anyone who believed in Yahweh that he was his God could, with a blood sacrifice, come into the courtyard. And the priest could go into the most holy place. We'll see this just in a minute. I'll put a graphic up here in a little bit. Um, and I forgot my pointer. Um, 
<laughs> but, uh, uh, but the priest could go into the holy place, but then there was reserved for once a year the high priest to come into the most holy of holy places. But God was going to make a way. He's going to make a way to get into his earthly throne room and so that he can be appeased for sin. Now, this picture anticipates so clearly a New Testament teaching of the blood of Christ. As, as, as the only mean to get to the Lord. The only way that high priest can get in there is he's got to bring the blood of something that's unblemished, innocent in a, in a way, into the presence of God to appease his wrath and to withhold, um, hold back the wrath that deserves sinful man. And that's the only way they come. So this is looking forward to something, isn't it? And we'll see this, that Christ, of course, is that one who brings his own blood as the high priest in before the Lord. Now, we have to be careful of making analogies to the Old Testament. Sometimes they go too far. We want to stick to the text and the scriptures. Let me just give you some things that have happened down through um, the ages. Uh, Phileo of Alexandria, 25 B.C., he taught that the tabernacle, he was a Jewish philosopher, um, he taught that the tabernacle represented the universe and, and that the universe was surrounded by planets. And, and he saw that the tabernacle uh, resembled that. He believed it. And so they read everything. The tabernacle was the center of all of the universe and that um, uh, everything surrounded it. And he even talked about earth and water and fire and all of that scene in the tabernacle and, and it just got crazy. They just started reading all kinds of things into the scriptures there. Then came Clement of Alexandra. He had a view of the tabernacle and its furnishing as a symbol of the earth in the, as the middle of the universe that, that the sun went around us and all that came because they believed the tabernacle was where God resided with man and so everything else had to revolve around that, Right? And then still others came along and said that the incense on the altar was just simply to keep the flies away. So you would swing from one end of the parallel to the end of the run, right? Still other interpreters allegorized the tabernacle way beyond the New Testament descriptions. Such as this, there have, there was, there's those, and, and sometimes guys that don't probably study as hard as they should or listen to the wrong people, they come up with things like, well, the skins that wrapped the, the tabernacle represented the righteousness of Christ that represents a believer. Well, I think that's a pretty nice thought, but there's nothing in the scriptures that would support that. So this is where people begin going beyond what the Bible says about things. There's another one I read. I kind of chuckled at this one. It said the dyed skins represents Christ's devotion to death. And I said, well, that, there's nothing there. And yet... And yet, we do look at this, and we do understand there is a picture, a heavenly picture on earth of how to come to God. How to come to God. One more that I saw that was just absolutely crazy. They said the boards of the tabernacle represented Christ's humanity, because they were made of wood. And then they said this, the gold overlay, because it was overlaid of acacia wood and gold, was the two natures of Christ. I thought, wow, that's stretching that. We don't want to be that person, but I do want to be one who has a biblical theology. And biblical theology tells us this, that, that there is a redemptive plan in the message of the Old Testament. Everything is leading towards Christ, and without reading eisegesis into something in the text, we can exeget it properly and see what God wants us to know. Now, we must remember that the tabernacle was not 
Israel's design. It's God's design. God, God designs it. Um, and he's not a God of confusion. So you don't start reading things in, well, maybe this meant this, and maybe that meant this, and so forth. God doesn't act like that. God knows we are just uh, flesh and blood. We're just but dust. He doesn't try to confuse us, right? And so everything seems to be fairly straightforward, and we can understand from a New Testament perspective uh, this as we keep our eyes on Christ. Now, we do ask legitimate questions, right? And I think our hermeneutic keeps us from straying to all those crazy things. But the New Testament clearly identifies the tabernacle as a type. Now, just listen to this verse. It means that there's a divine symbol there. There's a divine prefiguring of something there. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24 says this, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands. Now, what the writer of Hebrews is trying to remind the Jewish Christians there, that the temple is done. There, the, you don't need to come to God anymore that way. There was no need to worship and be in awe of this great temple. Christ entered a temple not made by hands. It, um, uh, so he did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one. So when we study the tabernacle, we begin to understand that it was God's way to help us understand just a little bit, a little bit of where he is and how he operates in a heavenly temple, in a he heavenly tabernacle. And so the Bible goes on to say, but he went into heaven itself. So there's a greater tabernacle, there's a greater high priest, there's a greater offering. That's what Hebrews is about. When you read the book of Hebrews, you should have that term greater, 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 greater all the way through it, and it'll help you worship amazingly. And so, so it's important that when we look at this earthly tabernacle, that we begin to understand God's holiness and, and how he can be approached and how he can't be approached. And, and, and so it gives us understanding of those things. Now, the rest of the verse says, now to appear in presence of God for us. So Christ did all of that. He entered into a tabernacle not made by hands for us. He didn't have to do it for himself. He went there for us. Now, though there, though there has been some abuse when we study the tabernacle, it does not invalidate the basic principles that the tabernacle foreshadows Christ dwelling among men, dwelling among us. So this allows us to examine this tabernacle, its structure, its furnishing, and it points towards the Lord Jesus Christ and his atoning work on our behalf. Now, in the current context, the, the Old Testament Israel, they've just left this polytheistic society, right? They've come from Egypt and they've they're got the gods of the Niles, the frogs, the fish, the flies, the cats, the dogs, and everybody else, right? Um, that's what they're doing. They're also surrounded by polytheistic nations. Everyone around them has plurality of gods. Well, the tabernacle and its furnishing were to solidify in the minds of God's people that there was one God, one living God, and he alone was to be approached in a certain way. The nations had experienced a lot of idolatry, hadn't they? Whether they had participated in it or not, which we think they did because they seemed to uh, readily accept the bull calf um, later on. We'll see that in Exodus. But they had experienced a lot of it. But God was, was never to be shaped into a carven image, was he? And we're reminded, when the golden calf comes out and they start worshiping that, they had, this, they had an inner desire to, 
to have a, some kind of God embodied in something. Nowhere in the tabernacle, nowhere in the tabernacle is that, is that ever given license to do that. In, in fact, God is spirit and we continue to see it that way. So this, what, what I, I think what I love about this is, is there's no other way to fulfill the view of seeing God other than the incarnation. So this is what we're heading into Christmas season, right? I told someone tonight, I said, I love Thanksgiving. You can have Christmas except for the incarnation. And my grandson's coming to visit. I'll take those two things. The incarnation is us now being able to see God in his exact representation, right? That's what Hebrews 1 says. We behold the word, right? And the word dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. So now God has given us a full view of who he is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And he does not want that embodied in any other things. And so as Christians, we never bow down to anything. We don't draw, try to draw an image of God. And, and as Isaiah says, what would, you draw, what would you make me in? What kind of image would you make me in? <laughs> How would you design him? When we talk, as Christians, when we talk about understanding and seeing God, what comes to mind? Jesus. That, that'll tell you you're saved. That'll tell you you're saved. Because you worship our Lord God and Savior. But for now, they needed to know the character of God. This is so important for the nation of Israel. As they come to the tabernacle, they need to know the character of God. And they need to know how to approach him. What they've seen and learned from the pagan nations that has nothing to do with God. And so now God's going to teach them how to do this. And all this instruction example was to prepare them for the coming Messiah. Everything that's going on here is pointing towards a coming Messiah that will redeem even Old Testament Israel saints who put their faith in God that they needed, a, they needed someone to deliver them, which that's not all of Israel. Roman tells us clearly that not all Israel is saved. But it does mean that there were some who put their faith in God, knowing that God would redeem them somehow. So all of the tabernacle, all of its pieces and furniture in it, in some way point towards the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's what we want to look at tonight. Now, there's two commandments that are so clear here when you, talk, when you think about the Ten Commandments. He starts with the first two. They were to leave everything behind. They did, he did not want anything that resembled pagan worship that would rob their understanding from a true God. And so they were to have no other gods and no other graven images. They were to have a tabernacle where he could come in, be in the most holy of holies in his earthly throne room and be dealt with once a year by a high priest who had been repeatedly clean, cleansed and brought into his presence. Now, the book of Hebrews tells us that the earthly tabernacle was a copy, right, of the shadow of, of, the, the hev, of God's dwelling place in heaven. Now, some questions I, I got thinking about a little bit today, and I shouldn't do this, but it's, it's so hard because you start looking at this thing, you go, man, there's some, there's some real parallels. Does the tabernacle remind us a little bit of the Garden of Eden? Hmm. Garden of Eden was perfect. God was in the presence. He, would, he, he was present in the Garden of Eden. In fact, as you study Exodus 25 through 31, it says seven times God said, God said, God said. In Genesis 1, it says God said seven times. 
And so there's some parallels that start to go on there. And so you start to see wherever God is, there's just this great perfection, isn't there? When he was in the garden before the sin of Adam and Eve, and he, uh, before the, uh, the sin of Adam and Eve, there was, it was a perfect state, wasn't it? They walked and talked with God. Everything was provided for them. There they worked in beautiful harmony with God. And that's the idea when, when this high priest comes in, even in the Old Testament, he is cleansed and he's wearing the right dressing, has the right robes on, and he's able to come into the presence of God and offer a sacrifice. All looking forward to Christ, and there's perfect harmony there. And Christ brought us through the veil, Hebrew says, into a perfect harmony of this eternal heaven. But we see some of this throughout the Bible. Um, there's some parallels to the garden, the furnishings of the tabernacle. Um, they could re- re- represent a celebration in the reconstruction of God's perfect creation, right? There, everything's right in there, right where it needs to be. And there's an anticipation of, of how things should be when we get into God's presence. I, I got just jotted a few notes. That were, well, there's gold in the garden, and there's a lot of gold in this temple, Things are overlaid with gold. Some are made of pure gold. There's precious stones in the garden. Um, If you look at part Genesis 1, I think it's 10 through 14, somewhere in there. Um, It gives a description of where the garden of Eden was. Don't go try to find it because the flood wiped it out. Um, However, it says, and it talks about all these precious stones and gold and all that's there. And so these things are also there as precious stones on the robes of the priests that come in. And then at the end of both narratives, and just another food for thought here, the focus is on the Sabbath rest and, and the both, at the end of them. When we get done with this narrative about the, the tabernacle, you'll see that he goes in heavily on the Sabbath rest. And so God rested at the end of creation. And so there's some, there's some parallels. And then one last thing that you see is God inspects both. He inspects his creation and he inspects the tabernacle. But then sadly, sadly, at the end of creation, in Genesis 3, man falls. And at the end of the giving of the law and the extraction of the tabernacle, man worships a, a golden calf. So there's some parallels that go on there that grabbed my attention as I studied this and thought that was quite fascinating. But anyway, the structure of the tabernacle is revealed here from chapters 32 to 35 here in the narrative um, uh, when, when, when Moses comes down from 32 to 35, he finds a portion of a calf. And we'll get into that narrative um, once we get through the tab- tabernacle. But right now, I just want to take you kind of uh, a fast trip through these, first, these two um, chapters, 25 and 26. And see if we can summarize them and, and, and see how they appoint and reflect to Christ according to New Testament passages. Now, number one, the call for materials to construct the tabernacle. Chapter 25, verses 1 through 9. You'll have to have your Bible open and kind of look at this. I'm not going to be so much in the text. I know that's unusual for me, but there's a lot of repetition in these few verses. And everything's overlaid with gold and sockets and rings and all that kind of stuff. And I think you get the idea of here. But there's some main thoughts here I want to bring you to. First, there's a call for the materials to build this tabernacle, to construct it. And it's interesting, as you look at the first two verses, God gave clear instruction to how the tabernacle was to be constructed, but God does not miraculously provide the materials. Now, there's times he miraculously provides things for them, water um, out of rocks and man out of the sky and so forth, but not here. He doesn't say, build me this, this tabernacle where I can be 
separate from you, but let, yet live among you, and I'm going to miraculously give you this stuff. He goes, no, I want you to give it. And so notice that the Lord requests all of his people to provide what was required. And I think what's unique about the relationship with, his, with the people of God is God asked his people to voluntarily give. Now that's completely different than the pagan the pagan societies around them. The pagan societies would say, no, you have gold, we take it to build this, and you will worship this. God says, ask the people for, for what we need to build this. And so Moses asked, right? And God had blessed these people as they came out of Egypt. Egypt dumped all their goods. In fact, remember the Bible said that Egypt was plummeted. Um, e- Egypt... Egypt gave them everything to get them out. Gold, silver, yarns. I mean, you're going to see in this text where they, I mean, the amount of, amount of thread that it took to make some of the things in here was amazing. I got thinking about this this afternoon. I thought, Lord, how much did they carry out of Egypt? But you're also talking millions of people as well, gathering these things to make this temple. And so this list of things that are asked for in verses 1 through 9 shows that the nation had been blessed. And, and God was asking them to give a portion willingly to have this together. Now, it also resembles, I think, uh, some of the colors and culture of the Middle East, too. As you study, there's lots of different colors and scarlets and reds and blues and so forth that are in there. We see that in them. But to, to make a parallel, and this is what God asks us to do, is he asks us to give willingly. In the New Testament, it's very clear about this. I mentioned this on Sunday morning because I was just fascinated with this verse in my own life. 2 Corinthians 9, 7-8 says, Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart. You know, the whole context is about giving, right? Um, the, the poor churches had been out giving the rich church in, in Corinth. And so uh, Paul is urging them on to participate in the advance of the gospel, Right? So he says, purpose in your heart. And I think that's what God's doing in Exodus 25. He's saying, Moses, tell the people to purpose in their heart to give. That they willingly give. And, and again, Paul says very similar. Not grudgingly or under compulsion. For God loves a chauffeur giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything that you may have an abundance for every good deed. So the Bible is saying if God's asking you to give, he will supply that. And, and the same was true here. And I, I thought that was fascinating. There's a lot of materials. You have to study this <laughs> uh, probably more than I did even this week to understand the amount of skins and thread and gold and wood that it took to build this portable temple. Now, look at verse 9 with me. I just want to point this out real quick. According to all that I am going to show you, God says, as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of its furniture, just so you shall construct it. Now, the term tabernacle um, is designated, designated as a dwelling place. We get the English word um, that actually is derived from the Latin, that we get this word tent, right? So a lot of your older translations might even call the tabernacle a tent. You might even have it translated that way. And God's people were living in tents, so I think, again, as we said already, this shows the kindness of God willing to live alongside and among his people, but it's anticipating, don't miss this, he's anticipating the incarnation of, of Christ. Christ did not come as one that was great, and uh, Isaiah sees him as, as one lowly coming. 
not one that you would you know, look upon easily. He, he, just, he came and lived among the people, right? So that's what this whole idea, it's more of a tent setting here. And, and the stress is not on the tent, it's on the person who's going to fill it, the God who is going to fill this tabernacle. Now look at this phrase, just so you, just so you shall construct it. And, and if you read this, if you were a contractor in here and you read all this, you would go, okay, there's a lot of skins and threads and gold and stuff, but uh, I don't quite see the blueprint uh, perfectly of what it should be. Now we're going to get more instruction after ch- verse, chapter 35, 36, 37, 38, and so forth. We're going to get more of that, and there's more in Leviticus and, so, and other places. But it's obvious that God is giving Moses a vision of what he's describing to him, what this is going to look like. And though when we read this, we can't quite see, we, you know, we're cheaters because we know what the tabernacle looks like. I'm going to show you a picture of it here in a minute. Um, but if you didn't know that, if you were here and you've never studied the Bible and you looked at this and you tried to read this, you would kind of go, well, what does that look like? It's hard to kind of see. So we believe God's leading Moses along. He's showing him the vision of this. Notice he uses the word pattern. And I like this word. It has the idea of architectural model. So God is, is the architect, Moses is the builder, and, and, and it's a perpetual call of Moses to fulfill all that God tells him to do. So remember, Moses is a type of Christ, and so just like, um, just like Christ, God sent him, he gave him work to do, and he fulfilled it, and, and Jesus the night before his death said, all that you've asked me to do, I have done. And so Moses is fulfilling that as he is a mediator to the knowledge of God and what God wants. Now, God's dwelling in, a, in the presence of his people was the center port of worship. And we'll see that later, that as they set the tabernacle up, all the, all the tribes are set around it. It's the center of everything. That's where God wanted to be. And that's the design of it. And he wanted Moses, do it this way. Stick to my design. Now, just one other just quick note there. I was jumping over to John 14. And Jesus says, you know, why are you troubled, you know? Believe in God, believe also in me. And then he goes on to say, look, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I have a design. I have a plan. I'm preparing it. And when I'm done, I'm going to get you. I'm going to come and get you. And so we see some parallels, again, between Moses and Christ as they prepare a place for us. And Moses prepares a place for God to reside. All right. Number two, the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. I think just a, a very generic picture is going to go up behind this. And I'll point a few things out. As we go along here, as we said earlier, the tabernacle is described from starting from inward outward, right? So when we study this, it starts in the most holy of holy. It starts where God is going to be present. So so the text starts to focus in on where God's present, where he's going to reside. Remember, this is the the manual principle, God with us. Um, The New Testament provides many clues as we study this. Of the foreshadowing of the Ark and of Covenant is furnishing. And so we, we therefore, ha- we, we have such a privilege. And I, I thought this today, I said, Lord, we have such a privilege as we look back at this and see what this was pointing towards. It was a foreshadowing in the film of fulfillment. Now, the Ark of the Covenant is here. This would be the most holy of holies. I think you can read that. Oh, that's really good, Troy. You can see all that. I don't know if you can see that. And so there, there in the most holy of holies, it was separated by a great a thick, thick curtain. They said somewhere to be around four to five inches thick and was um, the Roman soldiers when the destruction of the temple in in 70 AD hooked chariots and teams of horses to it and they could not tear it. 
So this is, I mean, imagine the thread and all the work that went into this thing. And of course, it had a picture of an, uh, an angel on that thing as well. But inside the Holy of Holies is an ark. Uh, we get the word from the English, an old word called chest. And that's basically what it was. It was, it was a chest. It's a different word than the Noah's Ark or um, the basket that, that Moses floated around in. And the Ark wasn't very big itself. I think sometimes we see, you know, uh, Indiana Jones or something like that. Uh, it's only three and a half feet by, roughly, three and a half feet by two and a quarter feet wide and two and a quarter feet high. It's made of acacia wood. It's covered with gold. But the Ark, that, that little box, that little chest was the heart of the tabernacle. And on top of it was called the atonement cover, or your Bible might say the mercy seat, which is the most important place in all of that building. Because on top of that was hammered out two cherubim who reached out their wings and they touched each other, and it was said that kind of glory would come and fill between that and he would reside with mankind there. Now, keper is the Hebrew word that we get for atonement or propitiation. And um, there's much evidence that even the root word means to cover, right? So atonement means to cover in some ways. The root word is found in Genesis 6.14 where Noah took pitch and covered the ark there. So this position of the mercy seat is, is on top of this chest, right? And underneath it, they would later place what? The law. And so I think that's a, a great picture, right? You have the law of God that reflects the perfect character of God. You have man in full depravity outside of the most holy of holies. And yet God is going to provide, even for those who constantly um, infringe on his sovereign commands. He's going to provide a way for those who broke his law, who, who ju- justly deserve condemnation. He's going to provide a way through the mercy seat so that we don't get what we deserve. And even when the nation, when you think about it, before Christ comes, the nation deserved to die. Everyone deserves a death. The witch is a sin is death. So, so past, present, future, all of that. But God, here among these people who in just days of this this scene that's happening, they're going to be bowing down before an Egyptian bull calf. But God is going to make a way on that mercy seat so they can have a relationship with him. And it's astounding, isn't it? And you've got to see yourself in this. You've got to see Christ bringing his blood in for you. Because there was no other way to appease him. We couldn't do it ourselves. And so inside this most holy of holy place where God resides is this Ark of the Covenant. And in between these cherubim is the glory of God resting there on top of a place called mercy. (laughs) I hope that encourages you. That's where God wanted to be known and be found. On the mercy seat. How many people do you know have a bad view of God? God's just out to get me. Oh, God doesn't care. Isn't he? I mean, we're deep in the Old Testament, aren't we? Way before he ever comes. And as he exposes himself to man, though it is just a high priest, 
and the greater high priest is coming, the Lord Jesus Christ, he wants to be found on the mercy seat. Man, I get a charge out of that. Aren't you so grateful for our God? This is the way he designed this. And, and, and make sure you understand that the mercy seat itself is, is insufficient if there isn't the blood there, right? The blood on the mercy seat, the sacrifice of something that didn't deserve to die, brings out his mercy, brings out his grace. Fascinating, isn't it? From the New Testament perspective, we have a clear understanding that the work of Christ was the final payment, the final atonement, the final propitiation, right? Christ, the Emmanuel, the God with us, comes and he resides with mankind as the son of man. He represents us. People ask you all the time, well, was he really here? Absolutely he was here. He had to be here. And if he wasn't here, we're dead men and dead women and dead children and everybody else. Sorry, I didn't want to scare your kids. He is our representative. And so when we see this, this is Emmanuel with us. We're going to get, I'm going to get into this over Christmas time because this is a lot of fun, isn't it? He comes, resides with us as the son of man. So he can... He can give his life as a ransom for many, Mark chapter 10, verse 45. He can pour his blood out for many, Mark chapter 14, verse 24. He kept telling the disciples he was going to do this. And at his death, he becomes the final, perfect, sacrificial lamb. And Jesus pays that ransom price with his own blood, carries it in in a spiritual sense in the presence of not a, not a human-built tabernacle, but he brings it right into the presence of God in heaven. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 9. I want to get your finger on this one. Because this is worshipful, isn't it? What our Lord did. Emmanuel's with us, and he isn't just hanging out with us. He's got a plan, right? He's got a plan to get wretched Scott to eternity. I always put my name when I study the Bible in here. I learned to do that a long time ago. It made me a worshiper. It made me love God more. Look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. So much here, but I have to keep moving. But when Christ appeared as a high priest, remember, he's the better priest, he's the better Moses, um, there's a better tabernacle, everything is greater, greater, greater in Hebrew. So when Christ appears as a high priest, certainly the greater one, there's too many passages that tell us that in Hebrews, of good things to come. So Emmanuel comes and he he now becomes our high priest of good things to come. And more is it good, meaning forgiveness of sins and eternity. He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Not made with hands. That is to say, not of his creation. And look at verse 12. And not with the blood of goats and calves. Now that's such an important statement. And you say, well, who's doing that anymore? Well, there are some obscure groups, religious groups that still kill things and so forth. I've seen that. But that's what I was talking about. This is what's good for us is... You can't bring anything. He doesn't bring anything frivolous like that to, to, to redeem us. And I think still people, in a way, bring their blood of their goats and calves, meaning I give money, I go to church, I'm not like my bad neighbor, or someone like that. They're still trying to do this. That's not how Christ came. He did not come with something that would not eternally last, is what the text is saying. Is. But notice, but through his own blood... So the blood of bulls and calves and goats and calves 
held off. Romans calls it like it held off the wrath of God. The Greek word there is a word that we have for dam. He held back this, this dam of judgment. Each year as the blood of bulls and goats and calves were brought into the holy and sprinkled on the mercy seat, there it held it back. But this time the final one was not the blood of goats and calves, it was his blood. It was him himself. And he brings it in. And look at, he enters the holy place once and for all. He goes through the veil. We'll see another verse in a minute here. Having obtained, look at this, not just a year-long redemption, but an eternal redemption. Now, I hope you're awake. I know you ate a lot of turkey, and some of you are struggling from tryptophan here. But that is good news. We have an eternal redemption. When Christ comes through that veil with his own self as the sacrifice, his own blood, God said that'll do not for a year, but forever for all who believe. See, this is why we have so much confidence. This is why preachers preach the way we preach, why you tell people that they need Jesus the way you do it, because you have confidence not in yourself, but you have confidence in Christ. Amen? Man, that's where our confidence is. And we find such joy in that. Go back to our text as I kind of get moving here. Um, verse 22 at the 25, if you just kind of walk down through this, there's a lot of beautiful things in here. You'll see mercy seat repeated oh, about a half a dozen times in here. But verse 22 says, there I will meet with you. I love that. God says, I have a place where I'm going to meet with you, Moses. And it's at the mercy seat. From above the mercy seat, from between the two cherub, cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in the commandments of the sons of Israel. I'm going to meet with you, but it's going to be at the mercy seat. And God still to this day meets with us through our great intercessor, high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, the mercy seat. And you and I, as Christians, walk into his throne room, not willy-dilly, but we walk in there every day, whether we're praying for our meal or praying for a dear brother or sister. We walk into his presence and stand before him on the mercy seat and speak with him. Because we ourselves now are priests. We're believer priests. And walk in. So much more to talk about that, but we are really in trouble here. The, the, the table of showbread. See how hard this is? I mean, I could slow down and I could spend a week on just every one of these, but I gotta go, right? The, the table of showbread, number three. Um, this, this would be on the south side right here. Excuse me. Wait a minute. This is upside down. That should be north. This is south. This is the south. This would be the north. And, and, and so here we have this tabernacle constructed and it has two components, right? You have the most holy of holies and you have the holy place, right? The second in the outer compartment is called this holy place and, and now everything is moving out. Remember we said everything started when you see all the instructions in Exodus and Leviticus and other places in Numbers and Deuteronomy and so, so forth. You'll always see where God starts at the place where he resides and then his instructions start working out from there. So now he comes out through the veil and he begins to give a description of the table of showbread in verses 23 through 30. Now the table itself is not, again, very big. It's roughly about feet, three feet long, about a foot and a half wide, and about two and a quarter feet high, roughly. 
Um, if you study the text, they, they, they did cubics, they used their arms, and, and a lot of the, if you go back and study this, the fingers, certain fingers were, I mean, they, you go back and read some old, old stuff, they'll tell you how they measured things out until Stanley came along and made a tape measure. That was funny, come on. Now, the most important thing about the bread the table of showbread, show it refers that the Lord's presence is with his people. Now, not only in a, in a special way, but, but in all their activities. So the table particularly pointed to several things. One, that God meets the, the believer's need, the follower's need. So when they were starving to death, what he gave them from heaven? He gave them manna, Right? And it goes beyond that as you study more and, and you look what he does when they get in the promised land. He gives them lands and he gives them vineyards and farms and houses that they did not build. And so it, it represents that God blesses his people and gives them what they need. Now, this isn't prosperity gospel. I know I've, boy, I've heard guys teach this stuff and go, oh, wow, you just left the realm of, uh, of a good hermeneutic, some of the things you're teaching. But it's to remind them that God met their needs. And you and I need that reminder. Is anybody in this room starving? Because if you are, we want to get you right with our deacons and we want to figure out what's going on in your life and help you. But most of us probably have a full belly, maybe too much. Do we take time to thank God? Daily. You know, I think we follow in these little prayers, right? You know, God, thanks for this food. Amen, let's eat. We always say, who's ever hungry, pray. It means a short prayer we get to eat. But think about it. So God puts this showbread, of all the things that God could do and have on display there, he puts some bread out. And isn't this what Jesus does when he teaches his disciples to pray? He says, pray this, give us today our daily bread. He prays, he teaches the disciples to pray dependency. Too often we deposit our checks and never thank the Lord for them, do we? And most of us have them direct deposited. Teach us to depend on you. And so the bread's there to teach a dependency upon the Lord. The Lord wants the nation to be dependent upon him. And he gave them lots of things. Remember, he gave them water out of rocks. He gave them other resources. He destroyed their enemies. Their shoes didn't wear out. You know all this, don't you? He did this for them. But he chooses bread. And, and, and bread's an amazing thing because it's, it's, it's something of a provision that's daily. It's something you need to live on, right? And... and and yet, and yet it's most fulfilled in who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Who not only in his earthly ministry provided for thousands of people to eat, but he became and gives a clear example that only he could provide this. Look at John chapter 6 with me real quickly. John 6. John 6, 28. Always unbelievers following Jesus, always bothering him, always lack of faith, right? He's describing that he's constantly doing the work of God. In verse 28, he says, Therefore he said to him, What shall we do? What, uh, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God and Jesus answered them and said this is the work of God that you believe in me who 
he has sent. I remember counseling a woman one time and she was just struggling in so many areas and, and she says, just give me a list to do. And then I can, I can get the list done and I'll feel good about myself and I'll, and I'll have taken care of my husband and children. Just give me a list. The Bible doesn't say anything about a list. It says this, believe in him. Believe in me and him who sent me. That's that's what he wants you to do. And so verse 30, they said to him, um, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe what work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness as is written, and he gave them bread out of heaven. And then Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it's not Moses who gave them bread out of the heaven. Now look at what he does, how he's going to tie this together. But it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. You're so hung up on the manna and you actually have it connected to Moses and it was God who gave it. Let me tell you something greater than the manna, me, he says. I'm the bread of life. And you know this, you go down through this. If you consume me, he goes on to say, if you consume me, you'll never hunger again. And the blind go, oh, what does that mean? The saved go, give me Jesus. That's the difference. And so here we have this showbread in the temple, in this tabernacle, in this tent of skins, to remind them that God has a provision for you to survive, to, to have, to make it. He'll take care of you physically, but he has the spiritual means through Jesus Christ to bring you into that throne room right before his presence. Turn back to our text real quickly and look at verse 30 at the end of that short section in Exodus 25. He says, you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me at all times. Listen, that's what I'm doing, to you, doing for you today. I am setting the glory of Christ before you at all times. If you ever hear me preach and I don't exalt Christ, please come up and don't hurt me, but rebuke me. So I love that. Have the bread in the presence of the glory of God at all times, Moses. So what do we do? We lift up the Lord Jesus Christ. We put the bread of life out there every time we preach. That's what we do. Four, the golden lampstand. Ooh. You'll see this next section um, in verse 31 through 40. So if you look at behind me, the lampstand was known, the Hebrew word is what? Menorah, right? You guys know that. Um, and it's not a candlestick, because candles, they wouldn't use candles yet. They come centuries later. Um, the candles start getting used. The, the lampstand was one of the most decorated and inert, uh, what's the word I want? Yeah, article within there. It was a beautiful object. And, and because it represents something, it, it, God wanted it on display and he gives great details here. And what it represents is, again, the presence of the Lord. When you light a candle in a very dark place, darkness flees from it. 
And as long as that candle is lit, darkness can't increase, can it? It cannot come back. And so it, it was lit perpetually to show that God was present with them. And it's made of pure gold. And it seems like the things that are closest to representing what God is are always gold within there in most cases. And the verses here tell us that it was made like a, uh, in the shape of a growing tree, kind of. It had blossom ends on it, and those blossom ends had little oil reserves in them. They weren't candles like they are today, but they, they had little oil reserves with a little spout on top, and they could stick wicks in there. And the lampstands um, consisted of seven lamps across them, and, and on top uh, of this shaft that was built, and, and so these six branches that came up around, the wicks were all aligned, and and, and the, the lampstand was placed on the south wall of the tabernacle and they were to, to make it cast a shadow on the wall behind them so that it would light across to the showbread. That's how it was to be set up. And you can see that in here. And more, we'll get into more of this as we get farther in the Pentateuch. But the whole idea was that this lampstand was to shine on the bread. Bread was the provision of God and later understood through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this elaborately constructed lamp conveyed two main messages. First, that the Lord is the source of light. There, there can be no darkness in the presence of the Creator, right? He has a plan to redeem His people, to bring them out of darkness. And just as God gave light in the original creation, He said, let there be light and the darkness fled, right? to bring order and sight to what he has done, so God also provides light in a miniature representation of the world in this tabernacle, right? As he desires to restore fellowship with man, he wants to be back with them. So he's providing this light. Now, secondly, it was a reminder of his constant presence with him. God had pro provided a means of light through pillar of fire, right? They followed that around. But now there's a lampstand that's been constantly flickering in the holy place to remind them of his rule and his presence right in the middle of their camp. He wants them to know that. But the New Testament just highlights the light of God that's restored in us through Jesus Christ in such a way, right? John 8, 12. I am the light of the world, Jesus says. Who he, listen to this. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. What a verse. What a verse. Those in this room who are believers or those who are watching, those who are believers, we no longer are captured by darkness. Darkness represents sin and Satan's realm and a dominion and domain that he belongs in. He's brought us into the light. And so this is another way of saying, I'm here with you. I am your way to light and life. I love 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. It's one of my favorite verses. It says, For God said, uh, for, for God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one, now listen to this, who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, and doesn't end there in what? In the face of Christ. So God gave us the glorious light of, of his glory in the face of Christ to shine. And bring us out of darkness. And this lampstand there was looking forward to the greatest light of the world, right? 
And it goes further. When you think about this a little more, it's shaped like a tree. It's got branches and flowers and blossoms. And, and so there's a picture of life here, right? And that God desires to restore uh, creation, restore his highest creation, man. And, and look, you can't separate life and light. They're intimately connected. It's again, a reason why I'm a six-day creationist. Study your Bible. You get plants and then light. Or the sun gets create it later you know if it's thousands of years you know we got a sun and you know you got anybody try to grow anything in the dark it doesn't work so there's this intimate relationship between life and light and so look at john chapter one with me real quick and i'll quit i, I just have to give up um it's always next wednesday well not even next wednesday the wednesday after that um, look at John 1. You've got to see this. Put this all into perspective. Remember, Emmanuel, God with us. John chapter 1, in the beginning there was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's Christ. He is God. He stands in equality with God. He was in the beginning with God, so He's eternally existed. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing has come into being, so He's Creator, right? In Him was life. Now look at this. And the life was the light of men. So the candlestick, the way it was designed, this, not candlestick, this lamp, was designed to teach you that God was lighting the way for you to give you life. And where was that life going? Well, it was going to the bread of life, and the bread of life was going to bring you through the veil and put you right at the mercy seat and have your sins forgiven forever. This is not just, well, hey, where do you think we should place the furniture? <laughs> this is designed by God as a picture of all that he was going to do through the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why your pastor gets so wound up about this. Verse 6, there came a man from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to test about, uh, testify about the light so that all might believe in him. That was John's job. Look, hey, there's someone coming greater than I. I can't even do his, I can't even undo his shoelaces. Verse 8, he was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was a true light which came, coming into the world, enlightens every man. And so here we have this beautiful lampstand that is pointing the way to how to get to God. And so Jesus is the one who gives both light and life to men. He's the one that causes us not to walk in darkness anymore. And, and you start putting all this together, and we'll, we'll quit with this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. So you have kingly, you have a kingly relationship. You have a relationship with the king, and you have the right to come into his presence as a priest. You're a holy nation. People who know the Lord Jesus Christ were a holy ethnos of people, were his people, people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You'll never look at the tabernacle the same when you study this. I hope you go away and say, man, Christ is amazing. Look what God did for us. Look how he has done this. So just final thought, as Israelites thought about the light streaming from that lampstand. And certainly, skins all tied together, light would kind of escape out of this. And certainly when the Shekinah glory was in it, there would be plenty of light. They were to see that it represented God's blessing of showing the way to an eternal relationship with him.
They were to understand that God was providing a way to him. And as that light shone on the table of showbread, they were to be reminded that God desired an eternal relationship with them. And so the Bible tells us, let your light shine. You want to see people get saved? Shine the light of Jesus. Stop sinning. Find, uh, find habitual sin in your life. Repent of it. Repent of it. We all have to do this. Because what we do is, is we are those who hide the light under a bushel. God wants it on a stand where all can see. I mean, could you not teach forever on every one of these items, huh? The Bible's just full of this terminology. And so, brothers and sisters, is the light shining in us? What's stopping it? What do we need to get out of our lives so that the light of Jesus Christ will shine? Ah, Father, this is just good. This is good to talk about this stuff. Our hearts get encouraged when we think about just the glory of God and his desire to dwell even with sinful men. Lord, you had Moses build a tent so he could be with people who live in tents. And yet, in your holiness, you made a way that would give them a view, a hope that there was mercy. And one, one who was selected could come and present an offering before you and receive mercy at that seat. But Lord, it wasn't just to end there. Our life was not going to be all sacrifice day after day, year after year. It was all pointing towards the one who would be the final lamb. And we can't help but read this and study this and think of Jesus. The greater high priest that entered a temple not made with hands, but came into your throne room, stood before you, cast his own blood in a sense on the mercy seat so that you and I, all those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, could have eternal redemption. Oh, so good, Lord. So good. Thank you that the light shined on the bread. The bread led us to the mercy seat. We believe that, Lord. May our light shine. May we find habitual sin, repent of it, turn from it, get help, do what we need to do, Lord, so that we can shine Jesus in our lives to others. Thank you for this lesson today. Bless these dear brothers and sisters, both here physically and those who are watching Lord, give them good, sweet rest tonight. Give them desires for you. Give us all desires to let the light shine in our life tomorrow. In Jesus' name, amen.